Good morning, good afternoon, good night. It's Xavi. If you know me, I'm happy you're here. If you don't, I converted a moving truck into a tiny home amidst the pandemic, gave up my place, and hit the road. Starting in Vancouver, I drove to Miami and realized that there was too much adventure not to share. So to fill you in on my journey, the Play On Foundation presents the Two Degrees Podcast. Why two degrees? Because I'm now a snowbird and escaping two degree weather. I built the truck wrong and the majority of the weight is on the passenger side, so we're tilted at two degrees. But also, I'm going to catch up with industry professionals who I'm glad to call friends and bring you two degrees of separation away from them and what they do. So, welcome to the Two Degrees Podcast, brought to you by the Playon Foundation for Neurological Research and Brain Aneurysm Detection and Prevention. To learn more about the Playon Foundation, check out www.letsplayon.org. But for now, enjoy the show. But first, a quick word. Do you like mangoes? <laughs> of course you do. And if you don't, well, I'm sure there's a high chance you might know someone who does. Well, the Two Degrees Podcast is sponsored by Peeled Fruit. No, not just random fruit that's been peeled, but the children's book about a mother's love language of peeling mango for her baby. Available for delivery on bookbaby.com, bookshop.org, Barnes & Noble, Powell's, and Amazon, just to name a few of the retailers. It even ships worldwide. Check out at Peeled Fruit Book on Instagram for more information on how to get your copy of this heartwarming story. Peeled Fruit, illustrated by Rhoda Domingo. Hey, hey. What up, what up? <laughs> how are you doing? And I'm good. I'm great, blessed. How you doing? Not too bad, not too bad. I, I like there's the, the way just like the shelves are behind you and just how you're, you blend in with them. Like with what you're wearing, I think there's there's a nice woody vibe going on, and I dig it. I'm just camouflage, man. <laughs> you can barely see me unless I smile right now. Love I'm it. Love a it. Piece of it. I got my Palo Santo here. Yeah, nice. Good. Are you heavy with like the with saging, with smudging, and all that stuff as well? Uh, I'm really conscious about smoke medicine because I know how like culturally appropriated it's become. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So as long as yeah, as long as it's coming from like an ethically sourced place, I am so down. If um, that's if that's what's happening, let me let me give you a little vibe on this end as well. <laughs> that's what I'm talking about man, you know, just cleanse any of the funky frequencies that you pick up during the day. I feel that. I feel that. I feel like. Um, especially with being on the road and even though I smudge my place pretty frequently driving through different areas, I feel also can change the energy of a space where it's yeah. like being in an apartment, you know, it's your space. You kind of control it. But then with this lifestyle that I've adopted driving all over and like outside just outside can kind of change the energy on the inside so it's it's like it's it's a good practice every now and then just to every time i go to a new space especially if i drive near a cemetery i think it's yeah. a good time yeah. to smudge. 
Totally, man. And I always like to have like a selenite with me. Do you know what selenite mm. is? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. I think I have one in here somewhere as well. Yeah, because that kind of helps, I find, with like, you're right. The energy, I find the energy of a space or the energy of a people, of a culture. I'm like, oh, okay, all right. I see what I see what you're on about, but I want to keep myself grounded in my own frequency. I feel that. I want to go into that a bit further, but first, everybody, welcome to the Two Degrees Podcast brought to you by the Play On Foundation. Today's guest, I have personally never worked with her as a scene partner, but by way of the industry, we've been attached to the same projects. And I first got to say hello to you in the lobby in Guam for um, mm -hmm. Christmas drop. And it was just interesting, like, to see the work afterwards and see all like the work that you guys put in before I even arrived on the island was was incredible. But um, it's Bethany Brown, everybody. Hey, everybody. <laughs> um, yeah, that was really special. Operation Christmas Drop and and meeting you in the lobby and being able to like welcome you. I think you'd been there for what all of ten minutes. Yeah, yeah. I, yeah, I gave you a warm <laughs> welcome. Uh, your part was phenomenal. You really sunk in, and you delivered oh, something special. Thank you so much. Well, with respect to that, like, I wish I knew that there was an option to have a musical number because your, <laughs> <laughs> yours, your, your moment, um, your scenes were great. But then that one scene where it was a party and then they just bust out the fiddle and then to which I learned you were actually playing. And yeah. so... I want to learn more about that. What's your history with music? Um, I started playing piano when I was about three years old. So my brothers, my older brothers were all playing and I would just sort of mimic them and I'd pick up the songs really fast. And so I'd sort of like make fun of them because it took them so long and so much practice to like get what I thought were really simple songs at like three years old. And so my mom was like, "Uh oh, we've got a musician on our hands. And then when I was five, I begged to play violin like for a full year because I saw it on Sesame Street. Okay, gotcha. Yeah. And um, so, so yeah, I had to beg for a full year to actually like before they'd actually get me a violin. And, uh, and then I got to take lessons and then I became a professional violinist at nine, um, which sounds really, you know, incredible. But I was just playing Christmas carols, um, you know, in the like local mall. So, uh, before, <laughs> Still, <laughs> you gotta you start know. somewhere, right? Yeah. You gotta start somewhere. Um, and then, yeah, I got to train with, with, uh, different instructors all over, all over the U S and Canada. And, wow. uh, yeah, yeah. So I did that. That was like, that was like my real gig up until about 17 when I retired and, uh, changed pursuits like professionally with my life. What prompted the retirement? It's an intense gig. It's like I was trained classically. And if you've seen Whiplash, it's kind of like that. So they're like, it's just really intense on how much you have to drill, like one bar, two bars. Um, and it's great. Like the outcome is fantastic. But a lot of us just felt like so stressed mm. around the idea of playing music or playing music publicly. Uh, it was no longer like just a fun jam and feel it out. And if you play a wrong note, who cares? Um, so 
I think most of us retired at that point or like between 15 and 17, most people are like, you know what, I got to focus on school or I'm going to go get a, you know, do something else with my life. Uh, and I was playing soccer at that time. And I remember my mom, she said that I had to take a year off soccer to focus on violin because it was just getting that intense. I practiced six hours a day. Um, and so, yeah, that's when I was like, oh gosh, I think soccer is going to be my thing. And so I ended up kind of retiring from from violin that heavily and then played soccer and I still played like I played the anthem at different soccer games or different sports games I should say yeah and then so for soccer then how far did you take that where did you end up competing with that I played in the NAI so uh, wow. that's a conference in the United States and I played for SFU yeah it was good I was on a nice sport and academic scholarship and so I did that for my kind of three and a half years that I did university, mm-hmm. uh, finished my degree, and then and then retired <laughs> again, <laughs> like 21, 22. But yeah, I torn my ACL and medial meniscus. Oh. Yeah, I had seven it's, concussions. Oh, man. So I, I did it. I did it. Yeah. I, I trained U20's national team, and I trained with the uh, Whitecaps kind of – because we have the High Performance Center up, up at SFU, so that's kind mm-hmm. of where all of the Whitecaps, like, farm team stuff trains. Yeah. So – I, I did it pretty seriously. Yeah. Jeez. Um, I want to learn more about that moment because I know another actor friend who his sport was basketball and mm-hmm. same thing, messed up his knees and it just felt bleak, didn't know what was going to happen and then ended up getting to acting. For me, I used to play hockey, tore both yeah. my MCLs and that kind of ruined it all for me. But what was going through your mind in the moment when you suffered that injury? Well, what was going through my mind was a whole whack load of denial. Uh, <laughs> so when I tore my ACL, it was during summer and yeah. it was actually that um, summer's fun, you know, so we're kind of back in our hometowns and like <laughs> from our hometown. And uh, there was this girl who I actually played in university with like against and she was just ruthless with our midfield and I had played striker so I had gone back to be like hey dude just chill out like it's summer it's summer league and like no they don't train like we do and it's just you know yeah, yeah. and so um she's got kind of a hot head and so a ball came up and over and so I went up to head ball and then she, instead of her going up with me she just pushed me out of the air um. and yeah, so I went down hard and I tore my ACL and I said, this can't be what an ACL tear feels like. And I was laying there on my back and the whole kind of everybody just went silent. And then I was like, no, I'm, I'm, I'm fine. I'm fine. I'm all right. I'm, I'm okay. And so I kind of like limped off the field, hobbled off the field. And then from then on, I, I proceeded to lie and say, I didn't tear my ACL. I just tweaked I my know. knee. Not a big deal. So for about four months, I lied. And oh, wow. I play. Cause I had scholarship too. And, um, but my knee kept giving out. Cause you know, you would know it's yeah. so unstable when you're missing yeah. a ligament. And so then especially finally, your ACL, like for people that don't know your ACL is essentially what holds your knee together during lateral movements. So yeah, in order yeah. to just step sideways, the leg is going to just, yeah. It does this. So yeah. it's like the top part stays here and the front part yeah, goes it it slips really out backward. yeah um and which sounds really gross that's probably should too much detail for people <laughs> they don't know. Uh, but yeah it, it is pretty gross and it's 
pretty uncomfortable. Like it's, it's super painful. Um, so I had this big mind over matter thing. And so I convinced everybody that I, I just had a bucket tear in my meniscus. So they said, you know, we got to, we got to clean up this bucket tear. Maybe we'll sew it back together or whatever. So they went into that surgery and they couldn't find my ACL. So they stayed for six hours searching for it and then just cleaning up the rupture because it actually had like exploded. Oh my so God. then when they told me when I woke up after surgery, I couldn't walk. So they'd done nothing different except actually help my meniscus. And because I knew I didn't have an ACL, I couldn't walk. So I was on crutches and, uh, and then had to just wait for basically my, my ACL so surgery. So over those four months then, even when you weren't playing soccer, what was like, if you had to get out of bed, if you had to go up and down stairs, like, what was that like then? I was fine. Really? It was totally fine. Yeah. Yeah. It was only in super dynamic, like lateral cuts, like you're saying wow. that I would actually experience. It would go out gotcha. because my quads and hamstrings were so strong yeah. that they were really compensating, but it was just like, you know, like you said, that lateral motion that would rely <sighs> on, on my ligament kind of holding me in place. And then, um, so you did have the surgery. I did. Yeah. And then what happened after? What, what was the rehab like for that? Uh, the rehab was kind of this four to six months thing. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was intense. Like I put SFU, I was in eight, I was in physio every day, um, yeah. in the hots and colds and, you know, they're doing the whole kind of whatever. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and, uh, yeah. Was it, the goal it, to get back into like, soccer? Oh yeah. 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 I got back on the field in four months, four and a half months. Okay. Um, but then was still rehabbing to the six month point, but it did something weird to my brain. So I thought I was a superhero up until that point. And that was yeah. when I learned that I was valuable and it was, oh, wow. strange. yeah, it was strange. Cause I wouldn't go as hard into tackles and I would just be more aware of everybody on, everybody else on the field. And I was aware of how small I was like, I'm only like mm. five feet tall, like five feet and a quarter of an inch. And I was playing against Christine Sinclair and Cara Lang and all the girls who were on the national team who are still killing it. And yeah. they're so much bigger than me. And I had no clue about it up until that point. And um, when I went back on the field with that other girl who had pushed me out of the air, I could not function. Like I actually couldn't get myself to get wow. up and play. I got to come off the field. Like I'm tripping yeah. out. So yeah. that was kind of my inclining of, I might be nearing the end of my career, but at that point I was 18. So I still played until I was like 21, mm-hmm. but I just knew that something was different. Um, and I knew that I, I think at that point I realized I wasn't going to play in the Olympics, which was the goal. And I probably wasn't going to play professionally, which was the goal. Mm-hmm. So when that was going through your mind, was there at any point that you thought I need to see maybe a therapist to get over this roadblock? No, Mm, no, not now. (laughs) I was so deeply entrenched in like athletics. My whole world was physical. Mm. It's like, if to be tough, you just go and do some cleaning jerks. Let's go get tough. (laughs) Toughness. Let's get out and do some shuttles with the football guys. Like that was what toughness was. So I kept on doing Uh. those things. Uh, And we did kind of have this concept of mental toughness, but it was more so, you know, when you're planking, and you're mm. gonna give out and you're shaking, then yeah. it's like, just go like Zen, get out of your body and just keep do- keep going. 
it mm-hmm. wasn't get back in your body and check in and see what's actually going on. Process your emotions. Yeah. Uh, maybe talk to somebody. Mm-hmm. <laughs> no, no, no. That's why I became an actor was so I could talk to people and connect and explore oh, my, my emotions. Uh, and them. Um, before we get off the topic of sports, though, and and start to delve into the acting. Um, so after like my MCLs tour and I didn't know what else to do. Um, funny enough, I ended up like years later getting into Thai boxing. And so that was my weak spot was the insides of my knees. If you kick there, it would get inflamed instantaneously. But I was able to just like really work on my defense and be mindful of that. And then, but what I'm trying to allude to is so with Thai boxing and getting to the point where I'm competing and there was a very toxic mindset when it came to having to cut weight to make weight. And it's something that um, I'm hoping to talk to um, another friend of mine who's a professional fighter and see where the mindset of the sport is going in terms of how athletes can approach sports at a professional level, even at a young age, with more mental health awareness Mm. so with that what's something because like how you were saying where it was like you just got to tough it out and you don't really consider talking to people what's something that you can suggest or that you can hope will change for future athletes in the sport of soccer that's a really difficult question um, because the one thing that I realized is, so I had had seven concussions as an athlete, yeah. as a soccer player, and some of them were from snowboarding some of them were from volleyball. And, you know, there's a couple different ways that I got them, but I had never emotionally processed having a concussion. It was an annoyance. Mm-hmm. I got hit in the head. My bell got rung. Maybe I got knocked out. Uh, and I, then I'd had difficulty focusing a little bit and school would be a bit more difficult. Mm-hmm. The whole point was getting back on the field. I then actually had a concussion during COVID. I was like trail running and I tripped over a route and I just went like head first down super steep slope and ended up, you know, getting, getting a a rattling my head, not the worst concussion I've ever had. I would say one of the more mild. Okay. And I got up and I was so scared. I was shocked and shook and I cried for two days, like two full days. And so I realized that as an athlete, I was so detached from what my body was going through for Mm. the most part, that that's how I was performing at such a high level. Because if I had any awareness, I would have said, hey, this is really dangerous and I should probably not do this because concussions aren't great for our brains. Yeah. Right. But now having so much emotional awareness, so much awareness of how my body's feeling and and when to take rest that, yeah, the concussion kind of laid me up for almost two weeks. I was so much more ginger with myself and and gentle. So I think it's a really difficult, difficult question for me because I'm still processing Mm. it. Mm. Going, yes, of course I want athletes to take their mental health into consideration and be gentle with themselves and self-aware. But then I recognize how differently I perform now where I wouldn't put myself in those circumstances to perform at such a high level. Um, Mm. Does that make sense? Because there's so much danger involved. There is. Um, but then do you think there's a way then to still 
reach that level of redlining um, for better sake of a word, but like to like go your hardest and the best that you possibly can for whatever duration the period or round is or whatever, or, or the half is, but it's like, there has to be a healthier way to approach the sport where you can still perform at your max capacity while understanding the fear and while honoring it, being able to put that aside. Yeah. Um, I want to say yes, of course, because I know that for so much of my life, I, I ran off of fear. Fear was my motivator, fear of failure, fear, fear of uh, not being good enough or imposter syndrome, all these different, you know, kinds of fears that, that, that we process. And I did a big, like, energetic tank switch to like love so now love is my motivator and mm. love is what i'm going for interconnectedness is what i'm going for and it's such a gentler perspective and it has not made me any worse an actor it's made me a better actor for sure yeah. and i know that in so many of the things like i'm now more into like yoga and hiking and kayaking and all those things i can still perform at a really beautiful level but in no way am i trying to perform professionally at yeah. my sport so yeah. I don't know because I haven't tested it in those fields, but testing it in an acting field, it's, it's fantastic. Yeah. It's absolutely fantastic because it cuts out the division between us. Hmm. Like fear creates such a division and, and such separation, whereas yeah. love creates connection. And so as an actor, all you're trying to do is connect. And, and so you get a really beautiful performance. And generally, uh, co-stars and castmates really enjoy it because yeah. it's so much more calm. Then somebody, you know, lit up here, so afraid that the scene's going to go terribly or, or <laughs> get to that emotional beat, you know? Yeah. I think this is a great way to segue into acting now on that topic of what was that journey like for you from being able to change your perspective from approaching something out of fear to approaching it out of love? So it was a long journey. Like, it, like that's kind of like a 13 year story. Yeah. Uh, but I can say the okay, well, we story. only got uh, 45 minutes left, so let's the actual switch from sports to acting was I, I was actually shopping for my brother for Christmas in like Rona and a shelf load of equipment broke and fell on my foot and crushed it. So I was still playing soccer. Yeah, up until I crushed my left foot. And then I, I, I didn't realize but I actually would never go on to play professionally or semi-professionally again um, because it had so much nerve damage that I couldn't strike a ball with my left foot and there's just no way to play on one foot oh um, at that level so that was like the end of my career and mm. before I really understood it was the end I knew I needed to make rent and so I was on crutches and I'm going like what job can I do where like I don't have to walk around that much and then I thought actors don't walk around right like they're just sort of Literally, that's what I thought. So I, myself, I went on, on the internet, figured out how to submit myself for an audition. And I had like no materials. It says bring a headshot and resume. And I was like, oh, okay. So I had watermarked a picture of myself and then just wrote random like stuff that I'd done for work over top of my watermarked face that I had just printed from my printer. Uh-huh. So I showed up on crutches, gave them this weird... Headshot so resume. Your resume was on your face of your headshot. Yeah. My face I watermarked my face. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> it, 
Exactly. Okay. So imagine this. I'm crutching in there with this piece of paper that I've printed with myself watermarked and random things that I have done, like irrelevant to acting. Oh my and God. I hand it and they're like, what is this? I'm like, headshot resume. I don't know. Y'all asked for it. And so they were like, okay. Okay. Yeah. And I had my guitar along because it was for, you know, part that had music involvement. And so I crutch into the room and uh, you know how there's like the tea and the mm -hmm. camera and the light. And then back here is where there's the couches and all the mm -hmm. clients and producers and everybody sit. So I crutch in and I see these folks sitting there. So I sit in the seats with them and I just, yeah, right. <laughs> Literally. But I'm like, so what are we looking for today in this, in this project? Just start having the chats. And Who is this girl? Is she, is she one of the producers? Is she? <laughs> Her headshot resume, if that didn't throw us off, this oh, did. Right? So then they were like, yeah, we're kind of looking for this folk vibe. And so I started to strum a bit on the on the guitar and I gave it kind of a folk. While you're still sitting next to them. Having, yeah, having the chat with them about what they want. So we wrote the song and then they were like, oh, do you think you can get it, like go up to the T and, and put it on camera? I was like, oh yeah, yeah, for sure. So I crutch over there and like sit down and do the thing. And they're like, can you teach it to, to somebody else? And I was like, oh yeah, the next guy, I, I talked to them. They were great, bring him in. And so I taught him the, the chords and then I strummed the ups, upswing. And then by that time I was like, you know what? I would love to play the violin on this. This would be so fun to have like a cool violin line over top of this. And they were like, yeah, okay. So what are you doing uh, in a couple of days when we have rehearsal? And I was like, I'm free. Cause here I am on crutches, I'm, I'm your girl. So they booked me in the room. And then wow. I crutched out. Yeah, I crutched out from there saying, thank you, thank you. I'll see you in a couple days. What and then was the project? It was a Wrigley's uh, gum <laughs> commercial. Yeah, and then I crutched out and I was just saying thank you to everybody for having me. And a producer was walking down the hallway and said, we want her in our project. And I was like, guys, I'm free. I'm totally available. So I booked two gigs in one day with my terrible headshot resume. That is the coolest first audition story I've ever heard. And weirdest, right? And so when people are like, so how did you start acting? I'm like, don't start the way I started. I would uh, <laughs> go to some classes. I'd recommend a couple acting classes, uh, maybe a showcase, you know. Oh, my goodness. Uh, but even with that, where it's like, it's so funny when people ask for tips and tricks of the trade or like, what did you do? And I want to emulate that where even to say, go start classes or like using the example of going to L.A. I know actors who have went straight to LA with not even a headshot resume and it works out for them. And yeah. it's such a testament to where this art is really about knowing your journey and just being true to your journey and just and owning not it. Trying to jump on somebody else's journey because no two journeys are the same. Mm -hmm. And just like you said, yeah, you might go to LA and hit, you might go to LA and get eaten up. There's so many folks who go to LA and then they never act again or, um, yeah, or, or other people who've gone to class and they absolutely hated it. And it was a treacherous environment. And yeah, you know, most like the, the, the safe bet, especially for Canadians getting into the industry where it's like going to LA without a work visa, without an O one, one without a green card is so risky. Um, more, more risky than going into, you know, your, with your headshot resume. And it's like, <laughs> you're right. You're right. <laughs> so whenever Canadians ask for tips, I always say, you know, start by trying to get on some Canadian productions first, 
and then go down where as much as I want to say that's the safer route, hell, if you want to just go straight there, own that shit, and it could pay out. And more power yeah. to that if that happens. Yeah, I always tell people to, like, if they can, get really quiet and ask, like, their heart. Because mm. 100% their heart knows what to mm. do next. And I can only tell you what I've done and what worked for me. And sometimes that clutters people's, like, actual internal awareness. Because my heart said, jump online, put yourself out for a gig and then book two in one day. And then, you know, I had agents coming, asking for meetings with me. And my, I was sitting there going, I just don't know what you're going to do for me. Cause I'm already booking. You know, I'm just saying, <laughs> I'm just saying, I've got a good thing going. <laughs> I see y'all want some money, you know, and they, luckily they didn't kick me out of their offices. They thought I was a hoot and was like, okay, well you have something special, but you have zero technique. So what we're going to give you is technique and put you in bigger rooms bigger scenarios you know um and i'm still with the same agent today that's brilliant that i sat then yeah uh because he's just been so fantastic and really did understand what i needed mm -hmm. and not to touch other things you know he so you met with multiple agents back then yeah so tell me about the process of picking the person that you chose to represent you so I wasn't really excited to collab with anybody at that mm. point because I didn't even know if I was going to be an actor. Yeah. I still thought I'd probably go back and be a soccer player or do, you know, the life yeah. path that I, that I had set out. Cause I had a degree. How's your foot now, by the way, can you, can you kick stuff now? Yes, but no, I can't kick. If a ball hits it hard, then I'm, it just shoots, kind of, it's nerve, it's nerve damage. Yeah. So it shoots like pain up my leg and then wow. I'm kind of throbbing for two weeks. So it's just, mm. it's not, it's not really functional in say that high level environment. Gotcha. Um, sometimes it'll cramp up. Yeah. So if I put it through too much, like say if I go rock climbing or something and I'm pointing my toes too much, then it, it cramps up and you know, um, but in terms of, can I do everything functional as an actor? Yeah. And can I do it at a pretty darn high level? Yeah. And can mm. I get around it? Totally. Like I can yeah. definitely tell it if we we're going to do, you know, some Muay Thai fighting and whatever else I can definitely get in there and make it look good for camera. Yeah. But if I was actually in the ring and had to strike somebody like yeah. actually hit them. No, I Fair. prefer not. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. Uh, jumping back to it, you said, how was oh meetings with agents and who I signed with? So yeah, I wasn't super motivated because I'm, I love commitment. And when I commit, I am like there forever, like, mm -hmm. because I'm such like a mosaic builder. I just love the artistry of sitting and working on one tile at a time and not really taking a lot of time to look out at how beautiful the thing is. Mm. Um, so, so I, I don't like to commit and then be like, actually, I'm not going to be an actor and haha, jokes on you. Like that, <laughs> that wasn't what I wanted to do. Yeah. And so, and I was also a musician. So like I, at that point, I think I'd just gotten back from tour in Asian Indonesia with my band, mm. if I'm not mistaken. Uh, I'm terrible with time because of all the concussions. Um, so it's all sort of this melty melting pot of an illusion. Yeah. Uh, well, that's, <laughs> that's, that's life. That is life. You know, um, but yeah, so, so what ended up happening was my current agent said, Hey, I'd love to put you out for something. You don't have to sign with me. What I would say is 
for the contract, whatever I put you out for, and if you book it, then pay me the 15%, whatever you're doing on your own, just keep doing it. And you don't have to bring it to me. If you want to, if you want some help with it, you can bring it by. We can negotiate if I take a, a percentage or not. And I was like, hmm. uh, okay, sure. And he put me out for a lead in a movie. And so I had to memorize lines and I had to play guitar and sing and dance. And so I went in and they kind of did the dancing first and that was really fun. And then we did the playing and singing and that was really fun. And uh, then we had to do the lines. And I literally, like, I think I said maybe two of them. And I was like, and I looked at Casper and I was like, that's, that's really hard. No, that's like really hard. Like I can't even hear with my ears anymore. Wow. That's really hard. Cause I went like full nervous response. And I was like, I don't want it. No, I'm just not going to do the acting part. Okay. And so they were laughing and they called my agent being like, we'll definitely see her again, but get her into acting Wait, class. that wasn't an internal monologue that you, you verbalized that it was hard in the room. Yes. I told That's you Korea, brilliant. Like, that, that, that acting is really hard. <laughs> That's brilliant. And they still see me to this day. And that's they amazing. Me the biggest project I've ever had. Yeah. 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 I did. I told them acting is like really hard. Like that's like really hard. That's really awesome. Hard. I love that. Yeah. And then, so you found out that saying lines was hard. And then what was your process like to figure out how to do lines? Oh, just like everything else, get to that mosaic and just tile by tile, you hmm. know? Um, start with a one-liner, move up from there. Yeah. Um, for me, like once say one page got easy, then, then, you know, I'd try to do nine pages or like however many kind of was my max. And at a certain point, you know, during pilot season, I think I had 36 pages on one day and that was really challenging. And so I was like, you know what I need to do? I need to memorize Shakespeare monologues because just to get the muscle you know what I mean like just yeah. keep tackling something harder like you would in the gym was this was this all your own revelation or did somebody advise try practicing with Shakespeare no I I just decided on my own because um you're a fucking prodigy <laughs> my creativity is quiet that's the I love weird it. thing about me is like I'm an extrovert in public but mm -hmm. so much of my time is spent quietly like pulling something apart yeah um and figuring out my own system with it so what made I, you what made you go to Shakespeare and think Shakespeare because it seems scary like but did you think of it in terms of if I practice Shakespeare this is going to help me get my lines down oh yeah yeah yeah, yeah. it was it's similar hmm. to like in music where I came from where mm -hmm. if you can do Rachmaninoff chords yeah yeah everything else should be all right you, you, you'll be able to figure it out so that's where I was like okay I think Shakespeare monologues are going to be like my big mm. you know stretching Rachmaninoff chords and then when I go back to say something like Vivaldi which isn't easy yeah. but it doesn't have those really kind of heavy yeah. wide chords more like Beethoven might have some wide chords but they're not as mm -hmm. uh, challenging you know um, oh, I love that I love that um I was actually also going to dive into this question later, but since we're already here, what are some commonalities or ways that practices kind of melt together from 
studying music to studying acting? Um, for me, I kind of think of everything as the exact same thing. We mm. just use different language to describe mm-hmm. it. So it could be the same as math. It could be the same, like ev- sports. It's all the same thing. Yeah. Um, and so all you're doing is actually learning the new language. So with, with music, like you can, you can break it down into simple short songs, like kid songs, yeah. right? And then become more complex and more heady and more intellectual, um, like, you know, really complex classical music. Mm-hmm. Similarly with acting, you can go in for a commercial and say a one-liner and, you know, smile yeah. and, and get in this kind of bright, joyous zone that like even kids really get it. And then you can go and do something really heady and complex and dark and, you know, with moody kind of bubbling transitions. Um, So, you know, beat by beat, like how I break it down now in terms of a script, I do think it more like an orchestra. And I Mm. think of myself as one instrument. And so in that there should be some theme, like we, we all should have something that we're speaking to. And when we're on theme, we should probably be the loudest instrument. But then there's other times where we're not the loudest instrument and when we're just supporting or where we're doing counterpoint, we're literally opposite to theme, right? And then yeah. you're struggling. That's where you want to get struggle because you're fighting for to, to speak the loudest. Yeah. Um, so that's kind of how I break down scripts now. And then in each scene, trying to let each emotion cascade into the next. Because I think one thing that people do is, okay, I can cry. Yes, awesome. I'm going to hit this out of the park because I can cry. And I'm like, yeah, but what got you there? Mm-hmm. Like, what were the beats before that? And what are the beats after? And how are you going to deal with that in this one scene with nuance and, and sensitively? So that's kind of what I'm trying to do now is, is really calibrate the performance and make sure it comes from a really deep and foreshadowed place. So it kind of rolls over each other and just happens or doesn't happen, you know, yeah. not yeah. missing it. Oh, that's fascinating. This is the first time I'm hearing it being broken down in a, at a professional level um, that from music to acting and that perspective where I just had a comedian on here and he used to also fight. So he broke down his comedic style in the way that he used to fight. And mm-hmm. it's just so fascinating seeing how, as you said, it's all connected. It's all the same. How art is universal in any aspect where if you want to take um music and you want to make that your art it's so easy to transfer into focusing on something else and making that into your art because you have that experience with art in the first place so yeah. just being able yeah, to understand that with storytelling yeah because at the end of the day that's all we're doing is we're telling a story mm-hmm. and so music is just a story but you know maybe there's lyrics maybe there's not Mm-hmm. Um, and so through that story, there's going to be emotional cascade. There's going to be tension. There's going to be conversation and, and you're trying to communicate something. And sometimes like with me, I like with music when you're trying to communicate something and, and they're not getting it. So you've mm-hmm. got to communicate it again in maybe yeah. a little bit different way, you know, yeah. and that often happens with enacting. Yeah. And yeah. I think a lot of newer actors forget to, it's okay to be misunderstood. That's mm-hmm. kind of awesome is when you get to the end, end of the scene, you didn't win. Yeah. People don't get you. And now you're going to have to come and fight for it again in the next scene. Um, you know, I, I, I like this sort of underdog way of playing it. No, that's beautiful. Now I'm curious, what were the correlations that you put together from your art as a, 
a soccer player into your acting? That, um, I would say the willingness to like literally work on something over and over and over and over again. Like as a soccer player, you generally like, you'll take a hundred shots a day. So you just have one ball. The goal is to put it in one net and you do that a hundred times a day. That's not even called practice. Like that's not even your training. Um, and so that just the willingness to, to do one little tiny beat over and over and over and over and over again, really drill it. Um, because coming from soccer, I didn't really have access to my emotions Hmm. in a, open pathway type of way like let's say for example in your brain there's like little roads um i my road to happiness and like vigilance and hard work was like (laughs) a highway like it was like a super highway it's like a six laner right and my pathway to sadness was like an overgrown forest that like it was really hit or miss if i'd actually get from point a to point b yeah because i just didn't cry that often I didn't have a lot of practice with it. And so that was one of the things in, in one of my acting classes where I was like, I just have to practice crying. So it's like, becomes like a little well-trodden deer trail, you know, yeah, and then yeah. one day it becomes a side road. And, and now today it is a side road and it's something that happens, you know, that I can, I can actually practice and do um, far more easily without yeah. so much pain and struggle. And you don't have to beat myself up all day long to try and get myself to a play. And we'll be right back after this short message. But in the meantime, don't forget to connect with us on our Instagram, at PlayOn2013, and tell us what you think about the show. Do you like mangoes? (laughs) Of course you do. And if you don't, well, I'm sure there's a high chance you might know someone who does. Well, the Two Degrees podcast is sponsored by Peeled Fruit. No, not just random fruit that's been peeled, but the children's book about a mother's love language of peeling mango for her baby. Available for delivery on bookbaby.com, bookshop.org, Barnes & Noble, Powell's, and Amazon, just to name a few of the retailers. It even ships worldwide. Check out at Peeled Fruit Book on Instagram for more information on how to get your copy of this heartwarming story. Peeled Fruit. Illustrated by Rhoda Domingo. Now, back to the show. Um, so what then was your process of exploring that road to sadness? Where, because it's, it's not just you, um, and not just people in the world of sports, but people who grow up in rough neighborhoods and aren't allowed to show that emotion all of a sudden now they're young adults and they no longer think that it's a road that they have access to. So how did you go about gaining access to it? So I think first recognizing that my key was avoidance. So if I was heading in that direction, avoid and distract and do anything else. Um, And even a lot of that's in my body, like the gesturing, Mm-hmm. And so I had to first learn relaxation where like you just sit and slump into a chair and very subtle, tiny, slow movements with your eyes closed, like of just rolling a shoulder. And there, like, there's really beautiful 
teachers who specialize in relaxation mm-hmm. and, and methods of acting that specialize in relaxation. So go and it, that for me really loosened up my body. Um, and when I actually was relaxed, so many tears rolled down my cheeks for reasons I didn't even know. Oh, wow. Um, mm-hmm. And then I think the next thing I did was sensory. Mm-hmm. So we do the relaxation. And then after that, um, my instructor, who's Kate Twa, who I absolutely love. And if you want to go have a brilliant exploration of self, you know, go to one of Kate's classes. Um, she would just kind of do a visual story where you're just visualizing whatever she's saying and experiencing whatever comes up based on that visualization. And she always gets very specific. So it could be, you know, this beautiful sunset that you're sitting and experiencing. And then, oh my gosh, this person beside you who you've had quite a bit of feelings for and haven't really told them just touches your hand, you know? So, right. You can feel all those feelings and then she take it all the way through to, uh, but that's the last time they'll ever touch your hand because then they tell you that, you know, they have been diagnosed with a terminal illness. You know what I mean? So you're like, Oh, okay. Right. So, um, in those, in those experiences, it was easy. There Mm. was, there was very little resistance because I'd already done the full relaxation. So my body was already really relaxed. And I found that there was a certain pattern of muscling up that I would do to try and get away from those feelings. And I think Kate calls it your ego suit. So before we'd even do our relaxation, we'd unzip our ego suits and become kind of the most vulnerable version of versions of ourselves. Um, and, and I think for me, I had to be really gentle with my ego because it served, it serves me really well. And it, it got me to this point and it's kept me really safe in a lot of adverse circumstances or highly challenging circumstances. So I'm not hundred percent against the ego. I just think it has its right. place. And I think it's really important to know when or know how to put it away. Oh, hundred percent. Um, I'm listening to a podcast right now, Hot Boxing Podcast with Mike Tyson and the guests that he has on. And he explores a lot of discussion on the ego. And it's just fascinating to hear how people's sentiments towards the ego is compared to how I learned it growing up where I grew up and everybody taught me that the ego was bad and that the ego, ego is arrogance and ego is cockiness and overconfidence. And it took a long time to learn that on my end where the ego is just something that protects you, whether or not it's protecting you with a lie saying like, for example, let's say you're afraid of heights and your ego is just protecting you from that, you know, falling from that height and it it doesn't want you to go up. That's your ego talking. But then learning to honor that voice and accept it, that it's there and that it's a part of you and that you can move past it was then the next step for me in understanding what that ego was, because I, I agree. I don't think the ego is a bad thing at all. And you put a good point of like learning to listen to it. What was that journey like for you in trying to honor that voice? Oh, I just uh, invited everybody to a table in my mind, like literally Mm -hmm. a circular table and my ego would come and it would definitely say like the most fear-based thing. Uh, maybe you're going to make a fool of yourself. And what if you can't do that? And, and then, you know, 
then what happens? We get kicked out of the group and nobody likes us. And, you know, if you think about animal populations as an individual, you're the most at risk hmm. out in nature. And so you yeah. want to be in the group. And so I would just say thank you for your contribution because you're totally right. If I were an animal in an animal population and I did something that they all kicked me out of the group, you know, we'd, we'd be really at risk. But this, I don't think is that moment, mm. even though for you, ego, it might feel like that moment here. I'm just going to try something new that I haven't done before. And it's quite likely that I'm going to fail, but it's in a really supported atmosphere or a really safe atmosphere to do that. Um, and that might be an acting class or that might be, you know, on a set when I was going to try something new. And oftentimes I'd ask, you know, the director, if, if they're like, oh, okay, we got it. And I'm like, can I do one or two more? I just have a couple of the colors I really want to try. And that's where I'd throw out new stuff that I really wanted to do, but it might not go well. Mm -hmm. And so it's a good, totally supported atmosphere. We've yeah, already got yeah. the take. We do have some extra time. Boom, you get to try something in higher stakes circumstances. Mm -hmm. um, so, yeah, like, and I also bring a pretty logical mind to, to the table to go like, what information do we have? What information do we not have? Like, mm -hmm. say for example, if my ego is telling me you're not ready and you're going to fail, I go to logic being like, why might I fail? What, what am I not seeing here? What haven't I prepared? Is yeah. there some, something I can do in terms of, can I practice more? Um, as opposed to shutting it all down, but also not like, I'm not going to not do it because yeah. ego said, Hey, we're scared. I'm like, I get it. And I'm going <laughs> to, you can have a bubble bath later. And try it, right. Um, but yeah, I'm not really into denying much of myself right now. Cause I think we do mm. so much of that. Um, and we're taught to deny so many pieces of ourselves. Like they're bad. Mm -hmm. They're not bad. They need to be heard and listened yeah. to. Does it mean you have to act on them? No, you don't. But, you know. And even, even with that, that adjective of bad, where I think us as a society need to kind of redefine our definition of good versus bad, because it's the same thing with right or wrong, where it's all about context. Yeah. Nothing is ever completely wrong and nothing is ever completely right. And so with that, though, I just also want to say, um, I got to give you credit for using the word logic, just because it validates me. <laughs> oh, why is that? Because yeah. um, it's, it's the same way that I explain it to other people. I've never heard anybody explain it using the word logic in kind of identifying steps to overcome it. And so just hearing somebody else phrase it, just kind of makes me feel like I'm also on the right path. And every now and then I, I need that gentle hand to just say, you're doing a good job. And because um, like one of my irrational fears, and I call it irrational, is because a lot of times when it comes up, it doesn't make sense. And that fear is big bodies of water. Mm. And to the point where a large swimming pool is a big body of water to me. And so I love swimming, but I kind of have to psych myself out before I go in where it's like, okay, I'm afraid of this body of water. Why am I afraid? Because there's stuff in it. What stuff is in it? Sharks. It's a swimming pool. There's not going to be a shark. Okay. Yeah, you're right. Cool. Let's go. swimming. <laughs> so it's just through that process of elimination. It's, it's where logic comes into play and just like, and when, I incorporate logic into trying to battle my fears nine times out of 10, I'll always come to conclusion of like, it's okay to 
do whatever it is that you're wanting to do. Yeah. So, yeah. Yeah. Um, I also kind of do my step one is get into reality. Like what is the reality? And mm. in a lot of situations, um, like you did in the large body of water, which happens to be a swimming pool in reality, there aren't any sharks in there. Yeah. Mm. Right. Yeah. Um, and for some people, I think going back to acting and going, yeah, well, there's so many people who are better than me and you're going in reality. There are, there's so many people who are better than me too. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I just shouldn't do anything because somebody might be better than me. <laughs> yeah. Right. And so there's this deep acceptance of going, Oh, right. No, I can still give it my best shot. And I can still have a really fun time doing that. And I can really start to isolate and go, this is my journey and it's my acting journey and it's about me. And so today is just me against me and, you know, not even against, but just trying to one step at a time, like take the next step forward. And it's okay if today it's one step back. Like I was working with a friend and um, his audition was phenomenal. Absolutely phenomenal. There was this one beat in it where it says, and his eyes well with tears. And that beat didn't happen. And so I was, he's like, what do you think of it? I was like, dude, it's great. The character is there, like through, through and through. I'm like, you're entirely believable, entirely in the circumstance. I'm gripped. I want to know more. There was one beat that it said eyes well with tears. It might be nice to have that beat. But if, if it's going to be too excruciating to get there today, let's not do it because everything else is there. Mm. And we had to literally get into reality and go, do we beat ourselves up in this moment? Because 99% of this audition is dope and the 1% wasn't there today. Mm-hmm. Or do we let it go and on the day if this happens, ask for some tear stick. And mm-hmm. then we get the nice close special welling with tears. Boom, got it, moving on, yeah. you know? Um, so that's kind of what I do with the majority of my life when, I can, when I'm not triggered. You know, when you're yeah. triggered, you're triggered and, and you need to do everything you can to kind of calm your nervous system down. But, mm-hmm. you know, getting deep into reality and going, yeah, no, 99% is good. We're good. You know, if 80% is good. You're good. Move on. Um, yeah. I think even with that, where it's like the reality of understanding, it doesn't have to be brought to tears as well. Where it's like, if I'm able to still do the compelling job without landing the entirety of the stage directions, I think that's still, you know, worthy of the choices that you made. And I think that's also a very important um, thing that actors need to kind of sit in is like, as much as you want to be true to what's written on the page, you also have to be true to you as well. And if you don't feel like you're meshing with whatever stage direction you're getting, pull back. It's okay. You don't need to go all the way. I had that experience yesterday um, (laughs) where my very first take, just an audition, uh, beautiful, beautifully written piece of work though. Um, and the, where, where I was in the moment, the, the welling with tears came far later, like in mm. the monologue when it was supposed to come before, which prompts the monologue. So on the page when written it, that actually makes a lot of sense. But then when it happened, it was so late, but it was so honest. And I was then I was trying not to cry because I'm trying to do the monologue and now I'm annoyed. Mm. that it's so late and then we finished it and of course my reader is going that was fantastic that was it was 
I can't, you were, you were fighting the emotion in yourself. And I, I wanted to be on your team just going, it's okay. You know? And I was like, no, we got to do it again because I, I, I missed it. The beats back here. And I, I want to hit that beat. So, you know, we did that and he goes, it's number one for me, man. There's some magic there. And I was like, yeah. really? All right. So we yeah. said number one and my team loved it. And, you know, so it, that's kind of like exactly what you're saying. You got to honor what is yeah. and sometimes absolutely magic and sometimes it informs the page you yeah. know and mm. that's what you go with yeah because um, respectfully as as much of the writing is bible by the writer sometimes the writer also is just writing out of how they think it should be when in reality once all these artists come together and make something happen that might not be the final product what he's written or she's written yeah um you used a word, a phrase earlier of um, being afraid of failure, to which we, as we know in this industry, is something that we need to embrace. So I'm curious about that journey of where you stand or sit with overcoming and accepting that failure is okay. Yeah, that's hard. It's hard because, you know, people will be like, oh, there's a lot of rejection in this industry, in this business. There is. Yeah. There, there's far more rejection than there is glowing celebratory acceptance. Um, and so I had to, for me, it's been an exploration of attachment and mm. going, why do I need to attach myself to this audition? This audition is what it is. It's an audition. And yeah, I think I smashed it out of the park. So that's that. Does it mm -hmm. mean that I 100% get the part? No, that wasn't the agreement. The agreement was I was going to do the audition and smash it out of the park. So that's kind of where I get myself into the reality. But then I also give mm -hmm. myself space to have a broken heart because I kind of treat it like dating where I'm like, I'm just like really into them. And they're just not that into me. <laughs> <laughs> you know, when the breakup comes too soon and I'm like, but I felt like I was so right for that. And like, <laughs> I looked cute and stuff. And yeah, I got, I got ready. I did makeup. I didn't, <sighs> I, you know, I shaved my legs for this. Like didn't, okay. didn't even, didn't even get a call back. Not even a second date. <laughs> exactly. Not, not even a second date. I got ghosted. Just oh, fully wow. ghosted. Yeah. I, that's the worst part of this industry is like, I hate, when people ask me, so did you hear back from the audition? It's like, we never hear back from the audition. Ever. Oh, Ever. man. No, and you know what? My friend just um, kind of spoke to me about this sort of Western mysticism. And yeah, and can you still see me? Yeah, okay, yep. good. I'm just going to bring it up because it was literally mind-blowing. And it was how to manifest like the, the four pillars of how do we manifest something? And first is to have the will to do it. Second is to dare to do it. Third is to deeply know. And for me, I go to this deep knowing of like, I'm ready. And then four is to keep silent. Mm. And I loved, love that because you know, when you're pinned on something and you want to tell everybody, <laughs> so I had the situation and I told my mom because I was like, ma, it shoots in Calgary oh. and you know, it's a series lead. And so like my sister-in-law and brother are in Calgary and our nieces are in Calgary. So mom's like, okay, well let's get a two bedroom place then. And so then I'll come spend half time with you. And 
Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Honey, we planned the whole thing. We planned uh-huh. the whole thing. I did not keep silent. And then when it did not happen, come April 1st, I had to deal with my mom's heartbreak about it as well as my own. But I had to, you know, hold space that mom was really sad and she, yeah. she was really ready to do this thing with me. And that's amazing, you know, to have somebody so supportive. But then it's also, I think, in terms of that, like the four pillars of manifesting, I didn't keep silent, which is part of where did where did you find that? Where did you come across that? Oh, man, this is like uh, a friend and their kind of spiritual psychological advisor kind of situation, you know, so it's like, oh, wow. okay, yeah, I couldn't even quote kind of who came up with it, but I guess it's from a tenant of of Western mysticism. So, Mm, no, that's beautiful. Yeah, and they broke it down into the elements too. Like to will is fire, to dare is water, to know is air, and to keep silent is earth. Interesting. And I was like, yeah, and I was like, oh, it is that grounded willingness to like kind of have it all but keep it in. Yeah. Hmm. With that, what is your relationship with the spiritual world? Healthy, rich, abundant. <laughs> what do you What do you mean? <laughs> and with that, though, so like, wh- how do you maintain that? What is your practice to keep yourself attached and tethered and able to access this portal of infinite divinity? Uh, um, I meditate every morning. When I met you in Guam, I was meditating two hours a day because I was, I'd come through a really difficult point in my life and I was having such a difficult time sleeping. And so I needed to meditate for like two hours just to be able to sleep. And now I make sure I meditate at least 20 minutes a day. And I, um, I think like I've, I've used different I don't know how to describe it, except that like, you know how we have a schedule in our day? Mm -hmm. I schedule in time for spirituality, like time for say conscious contact with the divine. Um, And there's sometimes when life gets so busy and you're sprinting just to keep up. But I know that when it gets slow again, I'm going for a hike and it's going to be for minimum 90 minutes and -hmm. it's going to be breathing in, you know, all of that abundance and divine and, and what creator has given abundantly and without expectation. Now, based off of your experience of being an athlete and the mindset you had to go through there, I'm going to assume you didn't have this mindset going through university. No. So how did you come about it? Uh, so interestingly, I think, uh, in my early years, um, like I was raised Mennonite. Hmm. So we lived off the land. Um, I churned butter. We, I collected eggs, milked cows, um, you know, grabbed corn for dinner out of the fields. We had a hundred acres. So my parents gave me like the language and the, the rhythm, like the routine of it in the day. And my mom, you know, at one point in our lives, she got a hot tub 
and needed a gazebo on it and then would say she gets 20 minutes alone no kids no anybody just for her and and creator and then we can come and you know but we have to do kind of five ten minutes of silence Hmm. out there then we can bombard her with our lives you know and so i really like that kind of energetic boundary awareness um so i have to say my mom is has been a huge part of that for me my mom and my dad my dad passed away which is why i generally talk mostly talk about my mom but um, both of them were were beautiful models of that and then i fell away from that because life gets so fast and i didn't see where i could put it in without a fear that i was missing out on something else um and then when things got really hard i like I felt universe kind of pull a whole bunch of stuff away from me. So I was injured. I couldn't walk my sense of self and, and my role in society was entirely changing. So I was no longer the soccer player. If he went to my high school, it's like, Oh, Bethany, the soccer player. Right? No, I wasn't. Cause I was totally injured. And, um, I also felt like physically I could get out of any situation. So like I was a sprinter. Like mm-hmm. I could li- literally sprint out of any situation pound for pound. I was pretty, you know, strong. Um, and then I wasn't, I was on crutches. I couldn't sprint. I couldn't get away. I wasn't strong. Um, and so something else had to come in and that's when it was for me. And then, um, you know, going through big heartbreak, like breakups, that's another time when my heart was broken open and spirituality just kind of flowed through me. And, and that's kind of, I think I felt that unconditional love. And I was like, whoa, because what I experienced was conditional love. Interesting. You know, so it's kind of through those lessons. And first they came in real loud, like treacherously loud. I was down <laughs> on my knees and it was like, oh, there's the lesson. And now they kind of come in in whispers because I have this sort of conscious contact throughout my day and I leave the space and time to meditate and, um, you know, meditating kind of for me being listening and praying, being asking and knowing that that's an okay circle to have. And so, you know, for me, I'll put prayers out for my friends like, oh man, I hope he has the best day today. And after this conversation, I hope he's lit with joy and love, you know, because why not? That's what I do want. I do want this planet to, and the people on this planet to experience love and joy and pull off some of the expectations we put on ourselves and each other. Cause it's heavy. You know, yeah. it, it's heavy. And I think people are struggling. I think a lot of people are struggling. So would you then have any advice? Not again, for people that are listening, take it with a grain of salt and your path and journey is going to be completely different, but it may help where you use the phrase where life was fast. How or what is something someone can do to identify the tempo around them? Um, okay, first of all, I have no advice. And I love that you kind of caveated it of like with a grain of salt, <laughs> take what you like and leave the rest. I've got no advice because like, if these are things that have just worked for me, they may not work for you. Yeah. My yeah. very first thing was I had to slow down. Um, and then I got to add things back in. And that's when I started to realize how, how fast I was sprinting and how many expectations there were on my time mm-hmm. um, and what I was doing at that time. And it was in the slowing down where time was all mine. It was my life. Yeah. I can choose what I do with my time. And 
that was a really liberating and powerful experience. Um, I think that people can learn that no is a full sentence. Yes. You don't have to explain why. You can yeah. just say no. Um, and I think in the slowing down, so like for me, like I'd gone through just, life was just so intense. I'd gone through a breakup. It was on one of the biggest shows of my life and that was coming to an end. So there's all these endings. So there was this forced slowing down. There was all whack loads of time where I had previously had people or jobs filling it. And then in that emptiness was when I got to choose what would fill it. And previously in my life, I would sprint to fill it, just fill it with anything. Um, but at this point in my life, I'd already been through a breakup and I had done the sprint to fill it with other people. And that was hurtful to them because I wasn't emotionally ready to take that on. Um, so this time around, I was like, I'm just going to sit in it. I'll just be uncomfortable. I'll cry some tears and do some hobbies um, solo or with other people or whatever uh, as I'm ready. And, and yeah, I think that's where I became far more aware of like, if this is how much energy I have, where am I investing it and where can I divest and reinvest? And so if there was like, cause there's some folks who are just pure drama they're great out partying. You're great. You're drama. Let's, let's do the thing. But then there's sometimes where they send like, I was like, bruh, your text messages are like emotional bombs that just come and blow up the day and demand so much energy. Yeah. It's just packed full of anxiety. And I'm like, I can't really roll like that at this moment. Cause I'm just so aware of how much energy and where I'm investing it. And it was interesting because of course, you know, people like they laugh because I'm, I'm having a humorous experience in this life and I'm just reflecting what I'm experiencing. And this person had no idea. And then they were so open and willing to work with me going, dude, I've never heard it explained that way. And I'm open to changing how I'm communicating. And I'm like, oh, okay, cool. Well, that's great. Then let's keep doing the thing. And I'm down to dance if you're willing to, you know, kind of go back and forth with me. Um, and so I think that's for me, like picking and choosing who I have around me and, and what kind of energies that I'm collabing with most often. I'm not, I'm not really big on like hard, 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 hard boundaries because I think people do change over time and I want to give people the option to change over time. I've changed so much over time um, that if, so, you know, like I have patience and I don't think I'm perfect. So uh, there's that, but I, I think in the beginning, I did need to be a bit harder with my boundaries um, as I became more energetically aware of how expensive some interactions were or how expensive even some auditions are and going, mm. Ooh, I don't think I can actually take that on right now. Mm-hmm. I, I could, but it would just end up kind of unhealthy. I'll get yeah. sick or you know, something else will kind of lose out. Um, maybe a performance on set or, you know, somewhere else. And so hmm. I'm like, yeah. Yeah. So oh, I think conscious. Does that make sense? Did I make any sense there? Yeah, no, definitely. Um, and it's, it's, I love how you broke it down in, in terms of like something that you, you invest and in, you can divest. And because there is, I believe, while we are in this physical human form, we need to understand our limits. Um, and I think we have done, when I say we, I say, I mean, society 
society has done a great job of convincing us that we're invincible Mm -hmm. and to where that just becomes a detriment when we figure out as you did no i'm i'm actually not invincible now i'm very vulnerable and exposed because i gave into this lie (laughs) for so long so it's it's very valuable to know that um i guess with that like honestly bethany you're you're so insightful with everything that you have to articulate and it's it's wonderful and brilliant and i know this could be a personal very personal question for a lot of people um but i was wondering if you were open to sharing what is your why um so in terms of like are you asking about my purpose purpose yeah. your your intentions for for why you're doing what it is that you're doing for anything that keeps you going what is what is that purpose what is that why that's a really really interesting question and um it's just it's going to sound so weird and funny but i'm just going to say it so um i was adopted and my mom thought that I looked like an alien in my little baby birth picture because I did like I had really straight hair and it all pointed up straight and um there was a couple other features you know that I just looked like an alien so she always described me as this little alien and in like the nicest most loving way possible and so I truly believed that I was an alien and I was just here doing research and my goal was to learn as much as possible to take it back to my planet and just like put it in the archives there So that's my why is I'm just here doing research and I'm just learning as much as I can. And, um, whether that be about me and my limitations and, you know, whatever it is, but about other people too, and and their limitations. And, and I think, um, if we go like a bit deeper, like why here and what am I doing here? I'm just trying to communicate. I'm literally just trying to dialogue that's mm-hmm. it and trying to connect through that dialogue um to feel less alone in this mm. ever-expanding universe you yeah. know because yeah. i kind of feel like the tether that holds us together is love and you know i think in metaphysics they call it like spooky connection that kind of <laughs> yeah it comes between particles and i'm like that's mm. the thing that's what i'm actually trying to do is actually connect so we all kind of get held together with this, like some tensile strength and of spooky connection or of love um, and, you know, hope for the best as, as we kind of continue to expand as a universe. So we don't feel so isolated and separate. Um, so that's, that's, that's in a nutshell, my why, but then the other thing is I know that I'm here as a healer. And so, you know, to help heal myself and to go through so many different experiences where in which I felt really broken or breakable um, to then heal and to feel so much stronger after healing. Um, and so offering other people, you know, whatever experience, strength and hope I can along the journey. I love that. That's beautiful. Awesome. Thank you for sharing that. Yeah. Edit out anything you don't like, man. You know, <laughs> oh, no, there's, there's no editing process. This is just, it goes out. It goes out raw. It goes out raw. This is this. editing. No, I'm sorry. Oh, you, you thought I had that kind of time? No. <laughs> it just doesn't. no. <laughs> the, the most editing I'm going to do is I'm just going to pop the graphic next to your face. That's it. That's as far as editing goes. But Excellent. Bethany, 
thank you so much for your time um, and and for your wisdom and for sharing everything that you you did today because not just because you shared it but because it was very well articulated energetically as opposed to it being just like not <laughs> to sound like I'm shitting on all my other guests which I'm not all my guests also had <laughs> They're great terrible. dial no, I'm kidding but there are some times where you hear um, rehearsed answers, if you will. Um, and so that's one thing I, I try to do is I try to stray away from the typical questions that you would hear going to Comic-Con or something like that and, and digging deeper into who you are as a person. So it's very insightful and something that I feel a lot of people can take from and apply it to their life. So thank you for that. <laughs> My pleasure. Thanks so much for having me. And your questions, yeah, I haven't heard them at any Comic-Con. That's for sure. <laughs> Everybody, thank you all for tuning in. The Two Degrees podcast brought to you by the Play On Foundation. Bethany Brown, check her out and everything that she's doing. She's got so much cool stuff already out there and cool stuff on the way. We didn't even get to talk about all that stuff just because that's, that's fluff compared to it what life cool. has I, to offer. We assure you it's cool, right? So come check it out for sure. <laughs> you know what I mean? So, uh, but maybe maybe next time we'll have you on and, and we'll keep it more about <laughs> the industry and, and what fans are also curious here. But other than that, thank you all for tuning in and magingat kayo. Thank you all for tuning in. Artwork by Monique Lizardo. Music by Kate Cole. If you enjoy the podcast, please like, subscribe, share, tag us, whatever all the fun things people do when they like something. But most importantly, check out www.letsplayon.org for the Play On Foundation and lend your voice in bringing awareness to the neurological research for brain aneurysm detection and prevention. My name's Javi. See you next time on the Two Degrees Podcast.